Good afternoon. It's Friday the 26th of March 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, the vote for the renewal of the Coronavirus Act uh, was in Parliament yesterday, the debate and the vote. Uh, I thought since we're a year in, now halfway through, uh, we would just remind ourselves what this was supposed to achieve. Let's just have a quick look. So first of all, it was supposed to contain and slow the virus. Did it do that? That's debatable, depending on which way you look at it. Uh, okay. Ease legislative and regulatory, re regulatory requirements. Has it done that? I don't think it has. I think it's quite, done quite the opposite. Well, it's, it's eased regulatory requirements in terms of uh, approving uh, the experimental vaccine, actually. So on that front, it's been hugely successful. Okay, I, I I'll guess. take that. And, and other regulatory, right, okay, so we'll take that point. Uh, enhance cap capacity and the flexible deployment of staff across essential services. Well, we're going to find out in a little bit, in a minute, that that's exactly what it's done. Uh, manage the deceased in a dignified way. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. I don't think so. Uh, it certainly managed the killing of people, uh, but whether it's been dignified or not. Uh, support and protect the public to do the right thing and follow public health advice. That was what it was supposed to do. So that's uh, the psychological uh, manipulation, the information warfare, the reframing. So I guess they've succeeded there. They have succeeded there. Well, let's just have a look at then at uh, how the vote transpired last night. Coronavirus Act 2020 Review of Temporary Provisions Number Two. Uh, there were 483 MPs, mostly Tory, that voted for it. Uh, actually, quite a good uh, support from Labour as well. Uh, 76 MPs voted against. Uh, so let's just have a look at uh, some of the names uh, on that. So Diane Abbott, Steve Baker, uh, Harriet Baldwin. Uh, Peter Bone, Ben Bradshaw, and so on. Uh, Christopher Chope, we'll hear from him in a minute. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Richard Drax. Uh, the usual suspects, really, uh, in that list. Uh, and uh, so it was quite a reasonably broad-based list, although um, wasn't enough by far to uh, avoid the thing being renewed. Um, well, let's... A few more Labour rebels, uh, I might add. Yes, this time, yes. This so it's encouraging, but yet not very consequential in this case. Yes, and uh, as you can see at the end there, William Rag will be hearing from him in a minute as well. Um, so let's have a look at this. This is Steve Bryan, uh, the Winchester MP, during the debate. Uh, he asked Matt Hancock this. Uh, the Prime Minister has been talking in the last few days about the need for Section 2, for instance, the emergency registration of nurses. So the concern here is that if the uh, Coronavirus Act were to be repealed uh, or not renewed for a further six months, then then Section 2, as an example, would uh, would obviously fall off the, uh, the statute books and this would be a problem. Uh, well, Hancock said this, uh, the truth is that we have a record number of nurses in the, NH in the NHS, in part because the Act allowed for their emergency registration. So it wasn't just the emergency approval of vaccines that took place as in the last 12 months, Patrick. We also had the emergency registration of nurses. And then I have to ask the question, are the nurses which, which were given emergency registration qualified? So is this lowering the bar of uh, selection or, or qualification for, for people, frontline nurses in the NHS? Is that what is that what happened here? That's what we need to ask. Uh, and he went on to say there are parts of this act that have allowed us to do good things that everybody would like to see uh, when we do come to retire this act, which must be within one year and probably within six months. Uh, we will need to make sure that we continue to do that sort of thing, that sort of thing being the recruitment of 
possibly unqualified or at least not fully qualified nurses under emergency powers. Lowering standards and waiving regulations. Yes. Basically, that's the theme. That, that is the theme, which brings us on to uh, Nursing Times, Patrick. Well, then the question is, you know, if you're uh, looking for more uh, additional nurses, Mike, maybe less qualified, uh, where would you be putting them? And you might find a clue in this story here in the Nursing Times, I might add. It's actually a very good publication. But uh, the headline here is the trust told to consider redeploying nurses who refuse the COVID-19 jab. So that's interesting, isn't it? So there was a bit of a controversy uh, in the last couple of months because there are a significant number of NHS nurses that uh, refused or declined to take the vaccine. And so they were, in, in a way, it seems like pressured or maybe threatened that they're going to be sidelined if they don't comply because they're frontline health staff. And this was a big problem because I think, Mike, the numbers were significant. Mm. Uh, so this isn't what wasn't trivial. But here's what they're saying here. Nurses who decline the COVID-19 vaccine could be redeployed to less exposure-prone settings under new health service guidance for England. What do you think that might translate to, Mike? Well, the question that we've got to ask then is, um, are these uh, emergency nurses that have been uh, uh, employed under the uh, Act, are they more willing perhaps to be vaccinated because they're grateful that they've received a job? Uh, does that mean that, in fact, on the front lines where, where uh, you need the experience and so on, that isn't going to be available anymore? More than that, Mike, when you're applying for the position, do you think that is possibly now an issue in terms of the application? Are you willing to take whatever vaccines are required or uh, advocated for in order to accept this, this job? And if, if, if that's going to happen in, on the NHS, Mike, could that policy of hiring uh, not be extended to other professions, mm -hmm. other industries, other, quote, key workers? That's a big question. So this is why this is a slippery slope. It's always been a slippery slope. But the government is just in, adamant and almost obsessive in basically uh, expunging any kind of serious regulation in really lowering standards on so many different levels, yes. not just on the vaccines, but as you can see, possibly uh, on the, 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 the actual civil rights of employees themselves. Yes. Yes. So uh, let's uh, have a look at some of the other comments. Uh, the question is, will it be renewed again in September? Uh, well, Charles Walker believes it absolutely will. We will be back here in six months at the end of September being asked to renew the legislation again. He said, uh, it's inevitable and anyone who thinks it's not is deluding themselves. So that was uh, absolutely clear. Now, uh, the question of the impacts of vaccination uh, did come up during the debate. Um, and uh, well, Matt Hancock didn't seem terribly comfortable uh, with a couple of the questions and he didn't really seem to have an answer. Let's have a listen to this. Yeah. I thank my right away for giving way, and he mentions data of occurrences within the NHS. Does the NHS have data to suggest how many people have sadly died from COVID in NHS hospitals three weeks after receiving their first dose of the COVID vaccine? Um, yes, the data on the uh, impact of the, uh, of the vaccine, including side effects uh, from the vaccine, uh, and including um, when, sadly, people die after having had the vaccine, uh, which, is, uh, which is rare. Um, these data are published by the MHRA, 
Um, and if there's any data in this area that are, that are not published, but he would like to publish, then if he writes to me, I'd be very happy to look into publishing those further data, because essentially we take an attitude of being as transparent as possible, because there are side effects to vaccine, as there are to all uh, pharmaceutical drugs, and we want to be completely open and transparent uh, about those, essentially to reassure people that the risks are extremely low. I'm great with my right honourable friend. He answered a question for me on this very subject, and he said that the data was not available. And I can't understand why crucial data such as the number of people who have been vaccinated for more than three weeks, who are then admitted to hospital and then subsequently die, is not collected. Why is it? Um, uh, uh, this, uh, this data has been, um, has been, uh, has been collated uh, recently. It's in the so-called SIREN uh, study from Public Health England. So I will, I will, I'm very happy to uh, look into exactly the data that... Uh, my honourable friends are looking for, and if we have it, publish it. Uh, and my, from, what, from what was asked for, I think that we do have it, but I will, uh, we'll, let's, let's try to do that by correspondence to make sure that we're getting it exactly uh, uh, what's being looked for. Because on the face of it, he's absolutely right. It's, it, it is exactly the sort of thing that we're looking at. So I, I want to make sure that we get the details of that right. Um, what a complete mess, Mike. It's a clearly mess. uncomfortable. uncomfortable. It, he didn't, well, basically, he didn't know how to answer the question because the truth is that that data is not being gathered. Now, Matt Hancock uh, claimed uh, that this data was being gathered by the SARIN uh, study. Well, here's the SARIN study. Uh, this is the website. It says SARIN uh, is the, as the impact of detectable uh, anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibody on the incidence of, of COVID-19 in the healthcare workers. So they're looking for volunteers to uh, be studied to see whether having been infected once with SARS-CoV-2, that gives any protection uh, in the future for future uh, exposure to the disease. Um, but this is very strange. Let's just remind ourselves what he said. He said, this data has been collated recently. This is the data on deaths from vaccination. This is in the so-called SARIN study from Pub Public Health England. Uh, except the SARIN study is still recruiting. The SARIN study hasn't begun yet. So recruitment ends on the 31st of March. Don't miss out. Uh, so I'm going to have to say that on the surface, it looks as if Matt Hancock simply lied uh, to Parliament. I would like to be again, proven wrong again. on that again. Yes. It's the third time in the last six months. Well, I don't know. I, yeah, but I so. That sounds about right. Um, so... And the other thing he then said, of course, was, but don't worry, correspond with me. We'll take this out of the public domain and we'll do it in writing in where it can be sort of brushed under the carpet and forgotten about. Uh, so the question then is, and we're coming on to this later, uh, the MHRA yellow card statistics, are they the full picture? And the answer for that is absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but the, the rest of the picture isn't being, uh, the data isn't being gathered and therefore there can be no evidence of the, the true impact of vaccination because we don't have the numbers. And, and so in his defense, he will probably respond, if you challenged him, Mike, he would say, I didn't mean to say the siren study, I meant something else. 
Could there be some other study possibly that he's referring to? Or do you think he's just made that up as a quick answer to get out of the line of fire on the question? I think if you look at the body language, if you look at the uh, the way that he was really grasping for something to say in answer to that. He was having a Biden moment. He, he was having a Biden moment. He came up with the first thing that occurred to him. And then he tried to walk it back afterwards mm-hmm. by saying, if we have the data and by saying, and by saying, write to me and we'll see what we can mm-hmm. do. So, uh, so anyway, get in that, touch that's... with get in touch with my people. <laughs> we'll talk behind the scenes. We'll talk behind the scenes. Yeah. Right now, uh, but Matt Hancock's, Matt Hancock's been producing other little videos uh, recently. Just have a listen to this. On the first of April, so next week, we will formally establish the new UK Health Security Agency, UXA, as it'll be known will be this country's permanent standing capacity to plan, prevent, and respond to external threats to health. UXA will bring together our capabilities in this area from the scientific excellence embodied by the likes of Dr. Susan Hopkins and her amazing colleagues in clinical public health to the extraordinary capability that NHS Test and Trace has built, which Dido Harding has led so effectively over the last nine months and the JBC with that analytical brilliance. I want everybody at UXA at all levels to wake up every day with a zeal to plan for the next pandemic. So they're going to have the zeal to plan for the next pandemic. So the next pandemic, the next pandemic. Is that the same one Bill Gates has been uh, warning us about in subsequent TV interviews constantly for the last 12 months. Pandemic 2, it's called. Yes. That, that, Interesting. That's a good question to ask. Now, so UXA, as it's being called, some people in the chat box are suggesting something else there, but UXA, as it's being called, formally established in April 2021. They're going to transfer staff and systems uh, over a number of months, and those are going to come from Public Health England, NHS Test and Trace, uh, and the Joint Biosecurity Centre. So this is uh, Fusion. Again, let's bring this word back in because this is the fusion doctrine in operation. This is fusion uh, bringing together all these organizations into one agency, which is apparently uh, on the surface of it going to report directly to Matt Hancock. Mm. Uh, I will wait and see exactly who it reports to in the end. So it's sort of a Department of Homeland Security for biological threats. Yes. Sort of thing. And this was, of course, debated on and it was voted on, right? Yes. Or was it? Well, uh, it just appeared. It just appeared out of nowhere. That's interesting. Is that how democracy works in 2021? It, it is how democracy works in the UK in 2021. So let's look at uh, what they're saying about this. First of all, it's going to prevent, uh, it's going to anticipate and take action to mitigate infectious diseases and other hazards to health before they materialize. That's, that's pretty magical, isn't it? That's, that is absolutely magical. Uh, tremendous. Uh, then it's going to detect. But it's going to prevent first, so I'm not sure how it's going to prevent before it detects. But anyway, it's going to detect and monitor infectious diseases and other hazards to health, including novel diseases, new environmental hazards, and other threats to world through world-class health surveillance, joined-up data, horizon scanning, and early warning systems. This is about data collection, big data processing, uh, and it's about surveillance on a level that we've never seen before. That's technocracy lexicon, by the way, horizon scanning. Yes. These are all these new sort of buzzwords for all these sort of um, 
you know, gravy train projects. Yes, uh, then it's going to analyze. It's going to analyze infectious disease and other hazards to health to determine how best to control and respond to them through coordinated and intelligent data analysis, modeling, modeling. Uh, computer modeling? Absolutely. This is taking Neil Ferguson and putting him on steroids and putting him in the center of their oh, system. So right? this is how they're able to find out what's going to happen ahead of time through the computer modeling. Yes, and we'll come on to more of that in a minute. Why didn't we think of that first? Indeed, and next they're going to respond uh, by taking action to mitigate and resolve infectious diseases and hazards to health when they occur through direct delivery, direct delivery, vaccines perhaps, uh, <laughs> supporting health protection system partners with tools and advice, engaging with citizens, and that means uh, uh, behavioral uh, insights and so on, uh, and flexibly deploying resources. Excellent. And then finally, they are going to lead. Um, so they're going to lead. Lead uh, from behind is the bottom of the list. Yes. That's interesting. Provide health, providing health protection system leadership, working in partnership with wider central government and devolving uh, administration and devolved administrations and public health agencies for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, local authorities, the NHS, academia, industry. It's, it is incredible. Everything, everything brought into this central centralized system. Amazing. Health protection leadership. That could be a whole weekend course, a common purpose weekend course, I think. You're that, absolutely right. That is inspirational. Health protection leadership. Oh, sorry, I didn't put my thumb. Health protection leadership. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Okay, let's head over to the United States, Patrick, and what has been going on there? Well, you know, the wheels are coming off the wagon a little bit, Mike. It's been, as you said, a year since the first lockdowns in, in the US and the UK and Europe. And so there's a bit of a problem though, because they have this problem in America, they have 50 states, mm -hmm. and not all states are on the same page, unfortunately, uh, with regards to the quote pandemic, with regards to lockdown and all of the experimental uh, mitigation policies that were pulled out of the magic hat one year ago and told to the people that you need to do this to save lives, et cetera. And so, I mean, there's a bit of a delayed reaction. So we're, they're asking the question here, uh, is COVID mania wearing off? And the answer is uh, yes, it is to some degree. And so there's Anthony Fauci there, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the most powerful man uh, in the history of the United States who's managed to undo the entire US Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, the rule of law and uh, traditions of government and legality 250 years in the making fauci's basically managed to unwind that in a couple of weeks right uh, two two and a half weeks to flatten the curve so uh we'll look at uh, what we're saying and we actually quoted here this is a journalist uh jordan Schachtel, uh, and this is what he said here about the current situation the public health experts are scrambling to remain in the spotlight and even in their most reliable their, their most reliable scare tactics are failing to keep the masses compliant, paranoid, and afraid. And for the, quote, public health cartel, 2020 has been the best year of their lives. I think you can agree with that, Mike. Same in the UK. Uh, and it seems that after one year of two weeks to slow the spread, uh, they just can't muster up the momentum needed to replicate that power high. That's a, a pretty strong statement there, Mike. Yes. Uh, and uh, Jordan uh, goes on. And this is what he has to say here. Uh, at least half of the country is finally reaching that chicken little endpoint. Uh, at once panicked, a once panicked population is slowly coming to the realization that 
power drunk governors, bureaucrats like Anthony Fauci and the quote public health cartel uh, and other snake oil salesmen, uh, more on that later, have done much uh, residual harm uh, in the name of the virus. So J Jordan Schachtel writes for uh, the Substack website here. There's the chicken little uh, there we put over Fauci. But I mean, that's a good point. Uh, it, it really has reached that sort of epic scale, Mike, mm. uh, where a, a year later, a lot of people who are who would normally go along with uh, the, the diktats of government, more establishment-oriented middle-class types, even they are now finally uh, having that sort of uh, epiphany mm. that uh, maybe we've absolutely been led astray because they've seen how many times the goalposts have been moved by all these new public health experts that have sprung out of nowhere and given all this un unprecedented uh, authority here. And so we can tell the wheels are coming off the COVID wagon, uh, especially looking at how some of these previously treated as gods, like Anthony Fauci, are now being uh, interrogated by elected officials, and not over Zoom, Mike, but face to face. And we've got a clip here of Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, who himself is a qualified doctor. Um, he is basically grilling Anthony Fauci about masks, about immunity, and Fauci is visibly uncomfortable. We we have an edited clip here uh, from that exchange. Let's look at that. Given that no scientific studies have shown significant numbers of reinfections of patients previously infected or previously vaccinated, what specific studies do you cite to argue that the public should be wearing masks well into 2022? I'm not sure I understand the connection of what you're saying about masks and reinfection. We're talking about people who have never been infected before. You're and telling everybody to wear a mask, whether they've had an infection or a vaccine. What I'm saying is they have immunity and everybody agrees they have immunity. What studies do you have that people that have had the vaccine yeah. or have had the infection are spreading the infection? If we're not spreading the infection, isn't it just theater? No, it's not. You had the vaccine and you weren't too masked. Isn't that theater? No, that's not. Here we go again with the theater. Let, let, let's get down to the facts. What study For, can you point to that shows significant let, reinfection? There are no studies that show just significant let, let, me, let me finish the response to your question, if you please. The other thing is that when you talk about reinfection and you don't keep in the concept of variance, that's an entirely different ballgame. That's a good reason for a mask. In the South African study conducted by J&J, &J, they found that people... Isn't that a massive, a massive sea change from months ago, yeah. just a few months ago, where Fauci was being lauded as this sort of high priest of public health? Mm. Now look at him. He's, he's, he can't even answer direct questions. He's asked for evidence, doesn't have it. Very uncomfortable. It's incredible. The so, question, the proper questions are being asked. Not only that, isn't, isn't it different when you're doing it face-to-face -face mm -hmm. than if you're doing it uh, remotely over Zoom, which yeah. they've all been able to avoid any real interrogation by the, uh, the, the system, by elected officials? Yes. So that, that, that's absolutely incredible. So, Mike, the COVID hysteria in America is wearing off, but only halfway, only halfway and only in certain states. Well, more on that later. We'll show you some states that have opened up. Yeah, okay. Well, the question then is, is there continued justification for, is it even for the government to continue this narrative? Uh, well, let's have a look at the latest uh, 
case numbers. Uh, and of course, uh, everybody talking about case numbers, because as you, if you look carefully on the right hand side there, you'll just see that it's starting to tick upwards again. Mm. Uh, very convenient that it's happening just as uh, we're coming into the summer. But anyway, uh, apparently uh, COVID deaths uh, have plunged uh, to 63 uh, per day at the moment, roughly. Uh, but the cases are up 1.5% uh, compared to this time last week. So it was 3, 6,397 cases uh, this week and 6,303 cases last week. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's going up again. But actually, so testing. Ah, interesting. So what a coincidence. You find more cases when you test more people. So when but, you've got but, a look, but the key point here is with the testing, Patrick, as we've made this point many, many times, when you've got low incidence of the virus, of any virus in the country, mm. and you test and you test and you test, then you get a much higher proportion of false positives than anything else. Yeah. So um, how many of these cases are really there? Uh, now, of course, uh, government attempting, as we'll come on to in a second, government attempting to to take credit for this fall in case numbers and falls in deaths because they're saying it's the result of the vaccination program. We'll have a look at that in a minute. So, so you're saying there's a correlation there clearly between a rise in testing and a rise in, quote, cases, right? Yes, of course. But, but deaths aren't going up in proportion the same way, right? That is correct. So wouldn't anyone applying basic logic might say that the more you test, the more uh, labeled cases you get. Yes. But those aren't actual infections. No. Nope. Uh, according to many doctors. So the, the tests are not diagnostic tests. Indeed. So, but we've got to remember once again, put this back on screen, uh, excess mortality below the five-year five year average in hospitals and care homes for most of the summer, below the five-year average now. But at no point in the past eight, uh, 12 months, have, uh, has excess mortality fallen below the five-year average for people that have died in their own homes. Um, so once again, this indicates uh, that uh, uh, those people have died as a result of withdrawal of healthcare and lack of availability of healthcare for other non-COVID related things. So overall, below the five-year average right now. Right now, yes, that's true. So, so where's, how can you say there's a pandemic on? You, uh, well, you can't. And let's, let's bring it on to this point as well, because this is from the latest uh, uh, COVID and influenza uh, Public Health England release. Um, so you could very quickly tally up the number of uh, hospital admissions with inf influenza since the beginning of the year, Patrick. It is, in fact, what's that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven cases. For, for the whole year, are you talking about? From, from, year, from week one, to week uh, 11, that is, of 2021, seven cases of influenza admitted to hospital. Where has the flu gone? Hallelujah, hallelujah. The flu has left the building. How, the, how did they manage that, Mike? Do you think, do you think, and I've heard, I've heard them talk about this on our illustrious mainstream channels, they said that COVID is crowding out the flu. Have that's you heard what, that one? That's what they're saying. Have you heard that one? So COVID is, is basically muscled in on the flu's territory, and only COVID can do that. Yes. So that isn't that interesting. So, but the, the key point here is, is this uh, fall in cases, fall in deaths, uh, the result of vaccination, or is it the result of, uh, well, the end of the normal winter respiratory illness season? The vaccines were deployed at a very key moment, just in time to, uh, uh, for, for the claims to be possible, 
that the, that the vaccination caused the uh, fall in mortality and so on. Uh, and uh, well, Public Health England has published this today, impact of uh, COVID-19 vaccines on mortality in England, December 2020 to February 2021. They are claiming 6,100 deaths prevented. So I was wondering, how have they come to this figure? How could you possibly calculate that scientifically anyway, Mike? Well, here's what they say. They say this, uh, both the lockdown and the vaccination program are likely to have impacted on incidents of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, negatively, I would suggest, in the sense that there's been more hospitalizations and deaths as a result of those policies than uh, uh, because of them. Uh, sorry, uh, on incidents of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths, therefore, there are challenges in estimating the impact of either intervention alone. So first of all, it's an estimation. So on what basis have they estimated this number? Uh, they say vaccine effectiveness against mortality was based uh, on the most recent P Public Health England estimates of effectiveness of vaccination. So they've taken their own estimates and they've used those estimates to make more estimates. Uh, so that's good stuff. Uh, it gets better. In order to allow for time taken to develop an immune response to vaccination from a, for a mortality endpoint, we assumed uh, it would take 31 days for the effect of the vaccination on deaths to be observed. So assumptions on top of estimates on top of other estimates, but it gets even better. Uh, using a dynamic age-structured model, Ooh, Neil Ferguson. Computer model. Yes, uh, that, has been continually, so that has been continually matched to national and regional data throughout the pandemic. We compare simulations with and without vaccination. So uh, what we have here is a claim of 6,100 deaths prevented by the vaccination program as a result of a computer model compared to an assumption, compared to an estimate or creating an estimate, which has created another estimate. And that should make us all feel very good. It's like the, the, the six degrees of Neil Ferguson, you know, it's like assumptions, feed those assumptions into a model and then get those results, feed them into another model and so forth. And you get your Ferguson on. Yes. Brilliant. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the latest uh, MHRA stats, uh, are showing for the Pfizer vaccine, a total of 108,694 adverse reactions. They're claiming 259 deaths, but as we saw from Matt Hancock and his inability to answer the question over another mechanism for vaccine-related deaths and the fact that the data isn't being collected, uh, clearly that number is nonsense. Uh, and then we have uh, AstraZeneca analysis, 294,820 adverse reactions recorded. This is on the MHRA's yellow card scheme and they're claiming 326 deaths for that. But the question is, Patrick, even if there was one death, what normally happens uh, with a medication? Well, I'll tell you what happens, but first look at these numbers, Mike. Matt Hancock said that injuries and deaths are very rare. He said they're very rare, they hardly ever happen. At, you know, where do you draw that line of hardly ever happens when you're looking at these numbers? And these aren't the full numbers, right? Well, those are, like, the, those are the four no, full numbers under the uh, uh, yellow card scheme. But, as, but as, there's more. But the point we've been making is people are dying under other circumstances. They're not being recorded on this mm -hmm. uh, yellow card scheme. And as Matt Hancock has basically admitted, the data isn't being collected. The same in America with the VAERS system, exact same problem. So what normally happens, Mike, if somebody dies of a drug, even one or two deaths, or someone's poisoned, or there's some serious injury, what happens? Trading standards steps in, or the government steps in, and that drug is recalled, okay? That's what's happened throughout history. But there is no talk whatsoever 
about that in this situation. So just do some casual research here. Take a look at take a look at this. I mean, we went to uh, a very simple website here called uh, Drug Watch, Mike. And uh, what's this? GlaxoSmithKline. So we had a peek on this website to see what they've got. GSK. Um, do they have any records, Mike, of, of any drugs, lawsuits, uh, recalls? Uh, yeah, they do actually. GSK products. Let's take a look at this. We go a little further down. What are, oh, look at this. Ooh, lawsuits and settlements. Oh, Zantac. Okay. Zofran. Yep. PPIs, Paxil. I mean, where does it end? It's literally endless. So many different scandals and recalls from injuries, from adverse reactions, from deaths, and much lower in numbers, Mike, than what we're looking at with these, this current batch of experimental COVID vaccines, which were waved through under a state of emergency. That's just GSK. Let's take a look at, uh, let's take a look at another one here uh, at the next site. We've got uh, Pfizer. What's going on with Pfizer? Uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look. So we do the same thing with Pfizer. So, and we can scroll down on this page. It's not, it's not working, I'm afraid. Okay. So anyway, oh, go back a couple slides. Yes. Um, so anyway, the, the point being, Mike, is that the, 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 it's replete with, with recalls. Yes. It's replete with, where the government regulators have stepped in and said, that's it, hit the brakes, pull, pull the stock back. We need to put it back into testing. There's going to be there's lawsuits and so forth. So they've got immu uh, legal immunity from prosecution. These drug companies. Uh, this drug has been waived through under some emergency uh, authorization that's unprecedented, and and they're pushing hard. The media's pushing hard. The government's pushing hard to uh, coerce people in all sorts of different ways uh, in order to sort of get the vaccine. Is this the here, take a look at these. So that's the Pfizer one that's decided to work now. So Yeah, so, so we, look yeah. at all these drugs. Drug recalls, look at that. Effexor, Prempro, et cetera. There's, the, the list is massive. Lawsuits, settlements, look at all these different drugs. Uh, Chantex. I mean, so if you want to do any research in this, Mike, that's normal form. Yes. That's normal form. Why, so why is, it being, why is it being given such special status? these vaccines, that they're immune from criticism, immune from prosecution, or anything like that. Why? Because it's a pandemic and we don't have time for regulations, because we need to save lives. And the vaccine is the only path uh, to save lives and free society from the shackles of the COVID pandemic, right? So we're told. And it's it, it's citing the, the death total. That is the number one uh, thing here. So here's this is just typical media coverage. You, you also highlighted this, Mike. This is Channel 4. You could pick any media outlet. 125,000 people have died in the UK, uh, while more than 27 million have received their first dose of the vaccine. So you see how they've tied the deaths to vaccines. Okay. And by the way, I'll just remind people, this is the first time in history for any infectious disease or, or, or pandemic or pathogen that they... They keep the meter running on the total deaths. That's never been done anywhere in the world, ever in history. It's normally by year. That's so you can compare whether one year is worse than the other. So they've basically stopped doing that. That point alone, that level of manipulation, is, in, in my opinion, evidence that there's something else going on here. There's no question about it. So why don't they want to uh, compare last season to this season? Because this season's going to be really low, isn't it? It's going to be really hard to sell uh, lockdowns to sell 
uh, all the different mitigation measures to sell the vaccination uh, programs if, it, according to the stats, year by year, the pandemic's over, right? It's going to be hard to sell all these things. So this is why it's been repackaged like this. Yes. But is that how many people actually died from COVID? Well, as we mentioned on Wednesday, uh, 126,000 is the current statistic. In fact, it's much more likely to be around 18,000. Now, some people asked where this figure came from. Uh, we've been talking about this uh, for certainly since May of 2020, when the Italian government or the Italian health service uh, released their analysis of actual people, of people who had actually died of COVID rather than having had a positive test and died of some other uh, illness in the meantime. Um, and, uh, and they had decided that it was around 12%. Um, there have been other studies in the meantime, which have come to roughly the same uh, numbers. So, you know, this is an estimate. It's not an accurate figure. It isn't possible to know exactly who has died of COVID because no postmortems have been done at any point in the past 12 months. Uh, and so we can't know the, the absolute truth of this. We can make estimates based on analysis, analyses, uh, not computer models not model-driven analyses, but actual medical analyses from various institutions around the world. You'd think that uh, a public inquiry, Mike, would focus on auditing, auditing uh, the, the number of, quote, deaths uh, of COVID or from COVID, not with COVID, but from COVID, where it could be attributed as a cause of death. That auditing process would be central, right? Because this is how you compare whether the, this, you know, plague is any worse than, let's say, the 2017 flu season. Yes, but you, you would example. only do that, Patrick, if, if you're actually wanting to give people the truth. If you're wanting to justify policy, mm. then what you do is you cherry pick the data that you want to cherry pick, or you repackage the data as something which it isn't, or you don't collect the data in the first place. So if you're not doing the postmortems, if you're not doing, if you're not collecting the data of people who have died follow, three weeks following the vaccination, and actually establishing what was the actual cause of death. Uh, if you're not collecting that information, then you can't be proven wrong in what you say, and, uh, uh, and you can't actually demonstrate 100% either whether your narrative is correct. In the US, they were shoving people on ventilators last spring. Yes. And in some cases, killing them, unqualified medical staff, by the way. And because of COVID, they had sh mm -hmm. shortages because they had to socially distance everything. And guess what? What did they put on the death certificate? COVID-19. Of course. Of course. So this was rife uh, in the U.S. Was this also rife uh, in the U.K.? Uh, I believe so. It's, it's quite possible. Yes. That's where public inquiry needs to be. Not when, and this is what the controlled opposition of the left are going after uh, Boris, and we're not protecting Boris at all in this conversation, but they're saying he didn't lock down early enough. Mm. He, he waited two weeks. He dithered while the pandemic raged. And and so there needs to be a public inquiry to find out why he didn't lock down sooner. So both sides of the establishment are protecting what they did or the malfeasance or willful negligence that they were engaged in in order to divert the conversation to you didn't lock down enough or you didn't lock down early enough. That's the controlled opposition argument. And, and notice how that's is being permeated right across the mainstream media. That's a safe debate. You didn't lock down early enough. Yes, we did. No, you didn't. That's the safe debate. The real debate is, did, what you did, was it correct? Was it proportionate? Was it reckless? Was it negligent? Was it criminal in some cases? 
That's the real inquiry. That's the real public inquiry. How many of those deaths are actually dying from COVID-19? Yes. That's the real inquiry that needs to happen. Um, okay, now if you like what the column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And we'd also very much appreciate it if you would share our material uh, on uh, from the various platforms and so on. Now, some absolutely superb news, and I'm just going to say a huge thank you to everybody that helped with this. But we can now tell you that Lynn Thayer uh, has been freed. Uh, she is coming home to the UK. Uh, not sure exactly when, uh, possibly tomorrow, but certainly within the next few days. Um, so let's just have a look at uh, communication that we've had from her brother, uh, who said, Dear all, I've just come off the phone with Linda, and I'm delighted to inform you all that despite having received a custodial sentence, Linda is now free. Uh, we would like to extend a big thank you to you all for your ongoing support despite all the difficulties encountered. You made, the, uh, you made this possible. Linda can return to the UK once her travel documents have been arranged uh, and uh, that should take only a few days. So realistically, Linda will be back at home with her family early next week after spending 19 months on pre-trial detention and then a further month staying with new friends in Paris awaiting trial. Uh, he went on to say sentencing. The other four involved will take place in Paris on the 14th of April. It would be improper of me to speculate as to what those sentences would be, but it is rumoured that David Noakes uh, will receive four years, likely to be reduced as he's already served time on pre-trial detention. Linda herself must remain silent about the case until after the 14th of April, but has asked me to let you know of the outcome today and pass on her gratitude to you all. Uh, Linda also mentioned how professional her, av her advocate, uh, Oliver for a was during the procedures switching when we did made this possible as did the hundreds of people who kindly donated towards her legal fund uh, and finally i'd like to give a big shout out to uk column to john smith the common law court keith and leslie who ran the crowdfunder to name a few who've been truly amazing and supportive to linda and her family through these difficult times thank you from the bottom of our hearts and that's from linda's brother trevor and i just want to echo that and say thank you so much to everybody who contributed to that. Uh, Linda was in a really dire situation and was likely to spend more time in prison. Uh, this uh, lawyer has done a spectacular job for her and there is a hope that David will now uh, sack his legal team and employ uh, this man instead. Uh, and we'll let you know as soon as we have more details on that. Yeah, that's great news. Great news. So uh, next, uh, a story from Cornwall, Patrick. Uh, elderly woman to be vaccinated against son's wishes after ruling by Cornwall judge. This is quite an interesting case, Mike. I think this is a very important precedent, potentially. Uh, let me know if you agree. This is uh, Judge Simon Carr said that uh, he had to decide what choice the pensioner uh, would have made if she had been able to here uh, to receive the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Let's take a look closer uh, at what the sort of defense was or what the son, who was given power of attorney, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, but his power of attorney, as you know, uh, is rendered pretty much null and void, isn't it? Uh, once, once your elderly parent or relative is in the hands of the court of protection, uh, the, you, your elderly parent is effectively owned by the state. A ward of the state. Yes. So you can't make those decisions for, uh, for your family. Let's take a look at this. Now, this is interesting. The son, I thought, made a couple of very good arguments. He represented himself in court, by the way. Uh, the son's concerned about vaccine side effects. That's a legitimate concern, wouldn't you say, Mike? Of course. And uh, here, said COVID vaccines had not been properly tested. 
That's a legitimate point. Uh, yes. So two legitimate points there. And this is the most interesting one, Mike. Positive that a blood test may show that his mother has antibodies and doesn't need a vaccine. But yet this wasn't allowed. Apparently, as far as I know, it wasn't allowed. So those are three solid points there, Mike, that are really science-based and really based on the facts that are out there. But he was completely overruled uh, by this. And here's what the judge uh, came back with. Let's take a look at this. And the judge said that he had to decide what choice the pensioner would have made if she was able to. It's a very hypothetical uh, judgment. I mean, that's quite an extraordinary thing for the judge even to say, but yet this is what it is. The judge claimed her medical history indicates that she had no objection to vaccines. Why was that? Well, because she had the flu shot for the last 20 years. So from that, that you can see, Mike, this is a potentially a dangerous sort of ruling, isn't it? Because it's you know, it means that all vaccines are basically the same, lump them all together. You need whatever vaccines being pushed by the state, by the press, that, you, you know, you need to have it no matter what. This is the way the court looked at it. There's no difference between a flu shot, which had gone through proper regulatory procedures, testing. But aside from that, of course, we have no idea what, what pressure she was under to take that flu shot. Was she in care at the time? Was the care home per, persuading her to take that? Uh, was she being given fearful messaging? There's no way to know whether she actually had an objection or not at this stage. Or if, it, you know, if she even thought it was her choice. You're right. Yes. So there's, that's the number of things that you could flag up to say there's, there's, there's questions surrounding this. But again, that's the main point, Mike, is that if you are in, in this country in a care home or any sort of institution like that, that's not really going there's a choice that's going to be out of your hands isn't it mostly yes yeah which is frightening in itself well it is indeed but uh it get, it, we don't need to worry pa patrick we don't need to worry because uh, apparently moderna is to create a dual covid-19 and flu vaccine whoa even though we only had seven cases of hospitalizations from flu since christmas so an all-in-one jab. An all-in-one jab. What could possibly go wrong with that? Is that, a, is that an mRNA flu vaccine? Uh, that would be, yes. Would turn your body into a flu yes. factory, basically, right? That's pretty, uh, that's pretty unprecedented. Uh, so, well, so the vaccine companies, Mike, are confident. They're confident. They don't have any regulatory barriers. Mm -hmm. uh, they can just develop and put stuff out to market immediately. So as long as this state of emergency holds, right, then basically you could see endless vaccines. But, uh, but the implication of what was being said during the, the debate was that, uh, okay, the state of emergency might end, but we've got to make sure that we still maintain the capabilities that we have under the state of, of emergency. So there'll be future legislation to retain some of these, uh, or if not all of these uh, ah. uh, PARs. So the state of emergency ends, but we'll keep the state of emergency. Absolutely. This is great double speak. Yes. Uh, um, but, well, what's been Billy Goats been up to? Well, he's been speaking to the press and media in uh, Poland, to Gazeta uh, Wyborcza and to uh, television broadcaster TV, TVN24. And this is what he said. We can measure the economic cost of lockdown, uh, but we probably can't even measure the loss of learning, the suffering from restrictions that we've had to put in place. Uh, but he said, until we get rid of it for the entire world, we'll still have to have some restrictions on bans on public gatherings. Uh, but even that, by the end of 2022, if we all work together, we should be completely back to normal. So this is going on for at least another two years. 
according to Bill. So, so he's dictating policy, isn't he? He's the boss. He is the boss. It's not going to get back to normal until we get zero COVID. Which is what he's saying, absolutely. In 2022. And he's also saying that fortunately, a technology called PCR allows us to do a test, a very accurate test. So we can keep tabs on this all every step of the way. Right. It's not an accurate test, Mike. It's not an accurate diagnostic test. He's, you, you presume he's saying diagnostic test, right? Yes. Well, it's not an accurate diagnostic test. It's a very inaccurate diagnostic test. And again, uh, most professionals who understand the PCR technology, which Bill Gates may or may not, we oh, don't. I think he understands very well. Will tell you that it cannot be used on its own as a medical diagnostic test. It is a research tool. End of, you know. But, you know, the key thing here is, Patrick, we can't lift the lockdown because we've got so many policy areas that, that need to be pursued, not least vaccine passports. And if we were to lift the lockdown and lift the, the emergency regulations, uh, then why would we need them? Right. So this and this this seems to be the end game. All roads lead to this particular policy, which is the vaccine passports, Mike. So the question is, why? Why do we need them? If there's no pandemic, if people aren't dropping dead in the street, why would you need all of these new unprecedented levels of social control and bio surveillance? That's the big question. And people say, well, it would just be for traveling or so I can sort of, yeah, just for my holiday. Well, uh, according to what Boris Johnson's got in mind for us, Mike, that's not actually the case. This is what the prime minister has said, that pubs could be required to ask for vaccine passports uh, from patrons. This is just this week. No, this is not a hoax story. This is actually real. Let's bring him in there. There he is, the respectable prime minister there. And this is what Boris Johnson was asked, if vaccine certificates, which is the vaccine passport, okay, uh, were compatible with a free society such as ours. The PM replies saying the concept should, be, should not be <laughs> totally alien to us as doctors already have had a hepatitis B jab. So he's comparing someone going in for a pint of beer uh, with a doctor in a hospital setting being required to have a hep B jab. Do you think that's an accurate comparison here, or is Boris Johnson really desperately reaching? He's reaching. For some metaphor uh, that doesn't actually work. So uh, one has to question his state of mind in this case, but it gets better. Get ready for this. Boris. I find myself in this long national conversation thinking very deeply about it, adding that the public want me as prime minister to take all the action I can to protect them. What do you think about that statement there? I, I think that uh, Boris uh, is a hypocrite. Uh, he's um, going to be called out on his hypocrisy increasingly because I'm seeing more and more uh, information circulating on social media and so on. Looking at some of the things that he's said and written about in the past, uh, when he's talked about uh, ID, for example, the requirement to carry ID, he's apparently positioned himself as being absolutely against it. Uh, in a his libertarian. He's been yeah. liber libertarian. And suddenly he is uh, determined to push ahead with this utterly draconian, uh, I don't know how we describe what it is, this dictatorship that he's trying to... Uh, to implement here? A total technocracy. I mean, this is, I'll just go back. This is relevant what Jordan, I think, Schachtel said in an interview we showed Jordan yes. earlier, but um, he's talking about our leaders. I, I believe this was him, but they're, 
No, it wasn't Jordan. It was someone else. But le leadership, unaware of their limitations uh, and unjustifiably pleased with themselves, um, are a feeling of entitlement, a lack of empathy and self-control, no integrity, and indulging in reckless risk-taking. Do you think that would describe some of the situation we're looking at right now? 100%. Interesting, isn't it? So uh, I'll find out the source of that, actually, uh, maybe after the show. So uh, not every uh, state, as we said earlier, Mike, uh, is basically ensconced in the pandemic narrative. Florida, South Dakota, these are free states. Texas is also in the process of you know, dropping all of its mask mandates and mm -hmm. so forth. Well, the latest one to join the party here is Arizona. And Doug Ducey was you know, very reticent to open up his state earlier, but he's feeling the pressure, Mike. Arizona governor lifts mask mandates, reopens bars and nightclubs. And there are a lot of bars and nightclubs in the Tempe and Phoenix area because it's a big university town. Mm -hmm. One of the largest universities in the United States is Arizona State, for instance. So that whole district, the whole economy buzzes off of that industry there. But uh, here he is, he's lifted it. And this is what he's saying, they're lifting restrictions, uh, including government mask mandates, allowing bars and nightclubs to open up. Now, this is the governor of Arizona, okay? Now, this is what the mayor had to say of Phoenix. And who's the mayor? Well, there she is. That's Kate uh, Gallego, or Galgio. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But she's saying, Doug Ducey, her, her governor's decision, directly contradicts the best scientists in the field, she says. The horrible surge last June was only curbed by masking, says the mayor of Phoenix, when the governor finally allowed cities to do it. To abandon precautions now is like spiking the ball on the five-yard line, is it, to use a crude football analogy. And you can see there she is wearing her mask on her social media profile. Now, mind you, Phoenix is 4.5 million people, so that's you know almost half the population of, of Arizona. And so you've got the governor going against the, the mayor of the most populous city in the state. So, you know, there's no continuity whatsoever. Uh, does, does, uh, is there any, who wins this argument? Well, or, or the independent in that sense? We'll see. We'll see if she's pushing for more local. And again, that's into the global cities mm. argument where these mayors are asserting dominion over states and also mm. over federal government. But uh, she just, her, her follow-up comment on that, Mike, we'll just have another look. Uh, here and see what she has to say. And so we know, look, get this, we know new variants are circulating, she says. So she's been listening to uh, Lord Fauci. And the risk of another surge is real, she insists. The governor clearly cares a lot less about the people of Arizona than his political future. Now, <laughs> do you think that he's you know, risking his political future by opening up his state? and following other states like Florida, like Texas, like North Dakota, and a number of other states that are in the process of doing the same thing. I think possibly the mayor of Phoenix might be overplaying her pandemic mm. hand, as are the mainstream media, as is the Democratic Party. As an example, I'm not playing partisan politics. I'm just saying that uh, one side of the aisle seems more enthusiastic about keeping the economy shut down, keeping the masks on, keeping the schools closed. So this is a big problem. So now you're going to see a split. You're going to see a split within states, within communities, with regards to this coronavirus pandemic. It, but I thought Biden was uniting the country. That's what he, he campaigned on, Mike. That's what he campaigned on. More on Biden later. But look at this recent study here. Data shows 
lockdown increases drinking, smoking, and obesity. Now, the smoking part is interesting. We know about the alcoholism at home. We know about the junk food and the obesity, but the smoking, Mike, how the hell did that come about? Nobody saw that coming, did they? Well, it turns out, Mike, how that came about was that for the uh, essential businesses like off-licenses and convenience stores, cigarettes are widely available, but uh, vaping shops were deemed, quote, non-essential. So the availability, the, uh-huh. the supply chains on those were, were less. So people regressed. They went back to fags, went back to cigarettes, as they, as they say in America, cigarettes in America. Fags in England. So they went back to cigarettes. So look what happened. So no one saw that coming. So that's not a great result, is it? More alcoholics, more drug addicts, more people smoking, more people uh, obese and uh, uh, sick from ordering and delivery junk food uh, all day. Lockdown works, Patrick. It's been a fabulous success for public health, right? Great. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's come on to this. Uh, this is Alex Belfield, uh, and of course he has been uh, commenting on lockdowns, on COVID, and on a host of other subjects for quite a long time now. Uh, he's been arrested again, um, and uh, I mean, it's really unclear what this is, what's really behind this. He is saying uh, that the BBC uh, are colluding with Nottinghamshire Police or Nottingham Police. Uh, he's been arrested four times. Uh, he's had two raids on his home. He's had uh, technical equipment removed. No warrants for any of this stuff. He's been put on bail illegally because he's never been charged with anything, or at least he has never been charged with anything, and he's saying that the bail is illegal uh, and uh, and so on. Um, and so he, pub- he published a, a, a YouTube video earlier in the week uh, which was really laying out a lot of the uh, information, a lot of the background to this, and I recommend that people go and watch it. Uh, But then yesterday morning, uh, this happened. Hello. Hello. Yes, what is it for? No, could you tell me what you're doing? Come down to the door, sir, then we can explain it to you then. Okay, well, I'm not. Are you arresting me? Sorry? Are you arresting me? You are going to be arrested, yes. Okay, and are you raiding the house again? If you come down to the door rather than having to chat. No, no, I I just like to. Are you intending to raid the house again? You're threatening to put my door in. I'm not resisting arrest. I need to speak to my lawyers. I need to speak to my lawyers. I'll come down. So he apparently then did have his door kicked in. Uh, He said that uh, he was arrested, uh, taken away, strip searched, questioned for five minutes and then released. Um, And again, this was all done uh, without a warrant. Now, the allegation, as I say, is that the original issue arose with the BBC uh, and that they um, are then through Nottingham police harassing him. That seems to be what's going on. Uh, But what's interesting is that when you look on the mainstream press for anything about this, really the Yorkshire Evening Post uh, is the only mainstream paper or organisation that seems to have mentioned about anything about this at all. Uh, the BBC certainly isn't talking about it, mm-hmm. uh, and I haven't seen any of the uh, t- you know, usual suspects that work with the BBC, like Channel 4 or any of the newspapers covering it. I haven't even seen it in the Daily Mail. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I, I certainly couldn't find it. Uh, so I think uh, we need to pay attention to this because if we're seeing this type of uh, collusion between uh, the state media broadcaster and the police uh, to harass somebody who's relatively alternative media, uh, then, then that's a pretty serious thing. Uh, would Nottingham police get involved in something like this or be this corrupt? 
Absolutely, they would. Anybody that's been following the Melanie Shaw case and the way that she was treated by the police uh, in Nottingham uh, will know this and more details on the UK Column website if you want to track that down. Um, so the the the, the yeah. Nottingham, Nottingham, Nottingham Police absolutely has form uh, in this area. Is is Radio Leeds, is that affiliated with the BBC? Is a regional affiliate? I uh, don't know. Okay. Does he have any history with... He, well, he worked with the BBC for, for I can't remember how long, 10 or 15 years. Right. Uh, Maybe so he, that's why. He has, he has history with the BBC yeah. uh, and has been pretty critical of the BBC since he left the BBC. Well, we know the establishment are particularly vicious against whistleblowers from inside the establishment, right? Yes. They're, they're, yes. they're singled out for very special treatment. So is that but, the but, case here? I don't, is, I don't know. It, well, I don't know either, but this is certainly, if what he's saying is correct, and I, there's no reason, as I say, as I say, Nottingham Police does have form in this in this area for this type of behavior. But if his assertion that the, that, it, that the Nottingham, Nottingham Police's activity is as a result of uh, the pressure from the BBC, then that's, that's a step mm. beyond what we've seen. And that's... Uh, certainly something that we need to get to the bottom of. So if we have any more information on that, we would be very grateful. Yes, and we will uh, report that back. Now, uh, Craig Murray, already mentioned in the chat box. Uh, Craig Murray, of course, former US, uh, UK ambassador to Azerbaijan. Uh, Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan, sorry. Uh, has, in fact, been found guilty of contempt of court uh, over some blog posts that he posted when he was covering the Alex Salmond trial. Um, so... Uh, uh, Asa when Stanley uh, tweeted out, uh, it doesn't look good. Craig Murray could be jailed tomorrow for his reporting on the Alex Salmon trial. Uh, actually, I thought his response to that was quite good. He said, cheer up, Asa, as my mum used to say. It's all part of life's rich tapestry. So uh, he, if you want to find out more uh, about the judgment and so on, you need to go to his Twitter feed because, unfortunately, um, he has had to take his uh, website down. Uh, temporary blog closure, as I described it on Twitter, in view of our understanding of the High Court, uh, sorry, that the High Court has for, found some articles in this blog to be of, in contempt of court, and in view of the fact that the Crown Office has sought to censor such a large range of articles, uh, that, that basically they've had no choice but to take the, uh, the his, his website down. So this is the current status of the uh, Craig Murray website, uh, saying that... Uh, they will assess uh, and analyze the articles that may be in breach, uh, and hopefully the website will be back up uh, as soon as possible. But uh, this is, um, for, I'm sure we will cover this much more with David Scott on Monday, uh, because he knows the nuances of this much better than I do. But nonetheless, uh, I, I believe uh, he will be sentenced on the 7th of May. Uh, Craig Murray deserves quite a bit of support. Uh, on this issue. And plans to appeal to the Supreme Court. He, he, he does. He intends to take this to the Supreme Court and to the European Court of Human Rights if necessary. So it's not over yet. Yeah, and he might have a strong argument. A lot of his proponents are saying, Mike, uh, that this was a very sort of vague and arbitrary uh, ruling in terms of uh, the contempt issue. Uh, they call it the jigsaw. He was a jigsaw contempt. Uh, type of thing where he they could take what he said in his blogs and piece it together with things other people said and therefore they could find out the identities of uh, witnesses that are meant to be kept secret yes and therefore that's the that's the underlying basis for the contempt charge so there's other charges as well in there it's a very complex case but maybe that complexity is also a result of they're trying really hard to make sure 
uh, Craig Murray is not out on the street. Yes. For for too many different reasons, but you'll probably get into that later with your coverage on Monday. On Monday, yes. Um, let's go back to the United States then, uh, Patrick, because I was quite amazed to see uh, Joe Biden held his first press conference. We've been waiting with bated breath for weeks for this. Uh, and it was supposed to happen, I think, two weeks ago and then last week, and it's finally happened. It just kept getting delayed because Joe's a little bit slow. We, we granted Joe's a little slow. But this was Biden's first press conference. He set an all-time record, U.S. record, 64 days waiting for the president to give his first press conference. So uh, now he shows up, he, he schedules this thing, Mike. And so people, there's a lot of anticipation. People are really, really excited. Looking forward to seeing a big press pool there, you know, firing questions at the president, the question, president answering those questions back. You know, people are really pumped for this, right? It's a massive press pool there. Yeah, there's about six people there. I mean, it's, they're all socially distanced. So because of COVID, the White House limited the amount of people that could be at this press conference, as you can see. So it's kind of a social distancing theater, writ large here or writ small, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, but so, I mean, this room's practically empty for all intents and purposes. So what we did is we took out some of the highlights of this, and we're going to show you some of the, the highlights and lowlights of this press conference here. I mean, to be honest, Were I just- Were there highlights? Look, there are highlights, but not in the good way. Okay, it was it was um, it was a train wreck for the for the most part. But the press were just saying, "Oh, it was brilliant. Joe was on form. What a statesman!" and so forth. But if you watch this press conference, it was actually a real disaster. But uh, here, here's Biden now reading the answers to the questions. No one's ever seen this before. He's literally got the answers to the questions. He's pulling them out. He's reading them. Uh, so it's clearly, the journalists were handpicked. The six or seven journalists allowed in were handpicked, the questions were pre-screened, and Biden's literally reading the answers to the questions. I mean, it's really embarrassing, but go ahead and look at this, uh, this scene here. All the things that relate to infrastructure, we have somewhere, I, I, I asked the staff to write it down for me, and they did, not for this, but for a, a longer discussion. We have somewhere uh, in terms of infrastructure, we have, we rank 13th globally in infrastructure, uh, China is investing three times more in infrastructure than the United States is. Bridges, more than one-third of our bridges, 231,000 of them, need repairs. Some are physical safety risks or preservation work. One in five miles of our... My, my favorite part of that, Mike, was oh, my staff, I had my staff write these out for me, but it wasn't for this conference. I just happened to have it on me. Right, Joe. I mean, so really embarrassing. So anyway, he goes on to pontificate about the crisis at the border, which he's pawned off to Kamala Harris now. Uh, he's basically let go of it and given it to her to sort out. So, but he was going on about, of course, climate change, Mike, because Biden loves climate. He loves he loves the pandemic. He loves climate change. These are the things that. Well, this is build back better, isn't it? Yeah. So building, uh, sort of building something. We're not sure. Well, building roads. Apparently, listen to this. This is climate, Joe. We have to build the environments. Are, global warming's already done significant damage. The roads that used to be above the water level didn't have to worry about where the drainage ditch was. Now you've got to rebuild them three feet higher because it's not going to go back to what it was before, only get worse unless we stop it. There's so much we can do. Look at all the schools.
the hell was he talking about, Mike? So, so what, the sea level rose by three feet? That seems to be what he's suggesting. We've got to build our roads three feet higher because the sea level rise. Is this a new breaking news? Because I haven't heard about this. I haven't this. heard about that, no. So, I mean, Joe, Joe is literally all over the place. I mean, it's painful to sit through. I, I admit it, I only, I only watched the second half of it, the second 30 minutes of it, but that was more than enough. Um, I think it was 50 minutes in total. So, but, but, but then the weirdest thing happened at the end, Mike. This was the bizarre thing. At the end, Joe basically, I guess, got lost, didn't know where he was, and started walking away from the podium and walking towards the press. And then all of a sudden realized that he was no longer around and then turns around and walks back again. So I'm not sure what happened, but take a look. This is just strange. Look at this. No, treating the root causes in Latin America doesn't change things overnight. How do you realistically and physically keep these families from coming to the U.S. when things will not get better in their countries right away? Well, I, I, I can't guarantee that, but I know, you know, that old thing, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. You know as well as I do. You cover it. You have serious... It's not like somebody sitting in a Hanyun table in Guatemala, I mean, in, uh, in, in somewhere in Mexico or in, in Guadalupe saying, I got a great idea. Where is Guadalupe? Uh, maybe somewhere in Guadalupe, Hidalgo, I don't know, in Mexico, maybe. Look, and I think what happened was Joe got, a, he, he, he wanted to get up close and personal to the press. Because he's, he's like that. He's sort of a working class, lunch pail type of guy. And then realized that he was breaking social distancing protocol and, and abruptly turned around to go back behind the protection uh, of, of the podium. So I was just really happy that he wasn't wearing a mask during the whole thing. I thought that, that alone, I thought, was kind of a, a great step forward for, for Joe. But uh, yeah, it's, um, if you can bear to watch the whole thing, it's definitely this is good for, for a co comedic value at least. It's, it's worth the effort. It's good for a laugh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, on that uh, upbeat note, we need to leave it for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time on Monday, 1 p.m. as usual. Hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.